inherent in the nature of man. <clears throat> Throughout history, man has established memorials so that certain individuals and events might not be forgotten. In ancient Egypt, they built the Sphinx and the pyramids to, mem- <clears throat> excuse me, to memorialize the pharaohs. And right up until today, our nation's capital is filled with memorials. The Lincoln Memorial, Jefferson Memorial, Grant Memorial, the Holocaust Memorial, World War II, Vietnam Memorials, and others. And many cities have their own memorials as well, as does Jacksonville. And all memorials are designed that we might remember the event and the individuals involved. And God has established memorials for His people as well. The Passover was a memorial meal designed to remember that great event. When Israel crossed over the, uh, through the Jordan but into the land for the first time, God had them erect a memorial of stones in the river that they might remember what God had done for them. And so it should not be surprising then when God is embarking upon His greatest work of redemption through His Son that He would establish a memorial so that His Son and the work of His Son might be remembered. And so as Jesus comes to the last evening of His earthly life, He meets one final time with his disciples and in the course of this intimate time together he establishes a new memorial he doesn't erect a monument he doesn't give instructions for a cathedral he simply uses bread and wine elements that will forever be a memorial and a reminder of him and what He has done for us. That's what we want to look at today. We're continuing in Luke. We come today to chapter 22. We're going to look at verses 1 through 20. I've entitled it, A New Memorial. All right, let's put this in its context. Jesus had just finished in chapter 21 teaching teaching His disciples about events that will happen during the course of this age and then climax with His coming. And Luke concludes that discourse in chapter 21 with the following words. The discourse actually ended in verse 36, but there were two verses of chapter 21 that we didn't look at, but they are important. Verse 37, Now during the day he was teaching in the temple, but at evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. And all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him to the temple to listen to him. Now, why does Luke add this little statement? He is intentionally showing that even at this point, Jesus is still very popular with the people. They would get up early so they could come to the temple and hear him teach. And so he still had this enormous following among the people. They loved his teaching. 
Now, this response of the people is in direct contrast to what we're going to see unfold. We've already had glimpses of it already, but now it is coming to full fruition, and that is the animosity and the hatred of the leaders toward Jesus, the religious establishment and their hatred towards Him. Now, the big question in the minds of Luke's readers is how can you say that Jesus is the Messiah when he was put to death as a criminal? He was executed by Rome as a criminal. How can you say that he's a Messiah, he's a righteous man, if he was put to death as a criminal? And so Luke is presenting evidence to show that he was in fact put to death by an evil, sinister plot of the religious leaders. He was innocent of any wrongdoing himself. But they wanted to get rid of him. And that's what Luke is showing as we go through what's called now the passion narrative as we begin to look at Jesus' suffering. So, as we come to chapter 22, we begin to see this evil plot unfold. And we have the plan to betray Jesus in verses 1 through 6. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. You can tell that Luke's writing for a Gentile audience because he has to explain the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. Okay, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Sunday. He has been in the temple teaching Monday, Tuesday, possibly Wednesday. And on Thursday evening of that week, there was to be the observance of the Passover feast. And Passover on Thursday evening was combined with the week-long celebration, the feast of unleavened bread. And both of these feasts were begun at the time of, and they both commemorated God's mighty act of bringing Israel out from Egyptian bondage. So these feasts, at the time of Jesus, looked back to an event almost 1,500 years earlier. Okay? The Passover feast was a remembrance of the death angel passing over the homes of the Israelites where they had killed a lamb and taken the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorposts. And when the death angel came in, when he saw the blood on the doorpost, it is said, that he would pass over that house because they had placed their faith in God. And so the Passover feast looks back to that. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, which began at the same time, commemorated the people leaving in haste from Egypt because when the death angel came in and killed all the Egyptian firstborn and even Pharaoh's son that finally broke Pharaoh and he says get out 
Go, leave. And so they got out in haste. And they were instructed to not take any leavened bread. And so there's a reminder there of the haste with which they left. But there's something else significant in the unleavened bread. Because in making bread, you would always take a portion of what was made and you would take a portion of it and you would use that to make the next batch of dough for the bread. And then you would take a portion of that and you would put that in the next batch. God is saying, I want you to use unleavened bread. Why? Because it's, 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 it's a demonstration of a totally new beginning. You're not carrying anything over from the past. And the unleavened bread marks their new beginning as the people of God. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread reminded them of their new beginning, their new life, if you will, as the people of God. <clears throat> now, so that's the background for what's going on here, the feast and stuff. And now we're told in these verses that the religious leaders had come to the decision that they must put Jesus to death. No longer were they trying to marginalize Jesus before the crowds. No longer were they trying to simply discredit Jesus before the people. But now they had decided we've got to put him to death. And the verb seeking, that they were seeking a way to put him to death, the verb seeking there is in that what's called the imperfect tense where, where it means they it, 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 it conveys a continuous action. And so they were continually looking for a way to make it happen. One commentator says it was a constant preoccupation for them. We've got to get rid of this guy. How are we going to do this? We've we got to put him to death. And they were obsessed with this idea. But there was a problem. They were afraid of the people. Jesus was popular with the people. That's why, you know, Luke told us that at the end of chapter 21. He was popular with the people, and if they were to arrest him publicly, Mark, in his account, says the people would riot. They feared a riot on behalf of the people. And so they needed a way to do it secretly, privately, away from the crowds. Well, a solution to their problem is found. But shockingly, that solution comes from one of the disciples. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. We're told here that Satan entered into Judas. And here we are provided more insight into how this evil plan of the religious leaders actually came to fruition. This tells us another dimension to the death of Jesus. There were spiritual powers that played a role in His death. And so this places His death on the level 
of a cosmic struggle between God and Satan and the forces of evil. Satan was a part of this as well. And it's hard to know precisely what is meant by Luke's words, Satan entered into Jesus. But it says clearly that Satan was involved and he was using Judas as his instrument to carry out his evil purpose against Jesus. So Judas sneaks away from the others, discusses with the leaders in Jerusalem how they might work together in order to kill Jesus. And note that Luke specifically adds when he mentions Judas that he belonged to the number of the twelve. He specifically adds that. Almost as if to highlight the treachery and the betrayal. And Judas, who even belonged to the twelve, verses 5 and 6 and they were glad and agreed to give him money and he consented and he began seeking a good opportunity to betray to them to betray him to them apart from the multitude see there's the key apart from the multitude the leaders were glad and it's ironic that the word here is rejoiced usually used in the context of rejoicing in the things of God. But here, they're rejoicing in their diabolical plan. Judas agrees to assist them. And what adds even a more sinister tone, he agrees to take money for his betrayal. Luke doesn't go into the details of that. We know from other sources that the amount was... 30 pieces of silver. But the religious leaders now had someone who could help them find a time, find a way to arrest Jesus away from the crowds. Now I think it is interesting that we're told here in this passage that Satan entered Judas. The last time Satan was personally active in the ministry of Jesus. Do you know when that was? The temptation. Okay, at the very outset of his ministry. Okay? Now, Satan's been talked about in the course of Jesus' ministry. Jesus would refer to him and such. And certainly, his demons have been active. But Satan himself has not been personally present. Okay? But remember what it said of Satan after the temptation, after he was unable to tempt Jesus. Luke says, the devil departed from Jesus until an opportune time. Until an opportune time. And the word there for opportune time is kairos. Okay? And now we see, we're told here in verse 6, that Judas began seeking a good opportunity. Guess what? Same word, just with a prefix on it. It was opportune time, kairos, good opportunity, you, kairos. Okay? 
I think Luke is telling us that this is Satan's more opportune time in which he will launch his final assault against Jesus. So the final obstacle the final obstacle in getting rid of Jesus is now out of the way. Well, Luke now resumes <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> resumes the narrative about Jesus. And we now focus on Jesus and the disciples as they prepare for and gather for the Passover meal. Let's read the account of the preparations. Then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Now once again, that would be Thursday of that week. And he sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Make all the preparations, okay? And they said, well, where, where are we going to do this? Okay? And he said to them, well, behold, go into the city. When you have entered the city, you will meet a man carrying a pitcher of water. Now, most likely, this was probably a servant because the servant will lead us to the owner of the house. Okay, we'll see in a minute. But this would be unusual because... Men usually carried water in leather bags and women carried water in pitchers or stone jars of some kind. And so that was their clue as to the individual they were looking for. And Jesus says, you'll, you'll, you'll meet this guy carrying a pitcher of water and then follow him into the house that he enters. And when you get to the house... You shall say to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room. Prepare it there. And so they departed, and lo and behold, they found everything just as he told them, and so they prepared the Passover meal. <coughs> Luke told us in 2137 that Jesus and the disciples would come into Jerusalem during this week and spend the day teaching, but then they would go back east of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives in the evening and spend the nights there. Once again, we know from some of the other Gospels that he was actually staying in Bethany, a little village east of Jerusalem on the Mount, Mount of Olives. Okay? And they would then come to the city to teach during the day. Now, because of Passover, this feast, it was one of the three what's called pilgrim feasts where the uh, participants were required to come to Jerusalem to participate in this feast. Literally, hundreds of thousands of people would come to the city of Jerusalem for the feast. And the Passover had to be observed within the city. And so it was necessary to secure a place to observe it. And so that's why Jesus was making these preparations. So he sends Peter and John into the city with specific instructions. Now, do these, does this event sound similar to anything else? Well, it may remind you of the instructions to secure the donkey for the triumphal entry. Remember it was the same kind of thing? Go in there, you'll find a, a donkey tied there and he comes out and says, what are you doing? And all that, you know. And well, it's the same, same, same kind of thing here. 
Now, it could be, and some commentators suggest that Jesus had made previous arrangements with this man in order to use his room. That's a possibility. But I think it reads most naturally, and there is no indication otherwise, that Jesus is exercising the prerogative of deity here. And He is showing His control and knowledge of all that is going on in the midst of all of this chaos and everything in the city of Jerusalem and and the planning for this event. Jesus knows specifically. And He's planning specifically for this event. He predicts what they will encounter and that's exactly what happens. So they secure the room which will be furnished with a low table and cushions or pillows upon which they would lie around the table. Then they had to, the disciples, Peter and John, had to secure the other elements for the meal. They had to get a lamb. They had to take the lamb to the temple between 2.30 and 5.30 on Thursday afternoon to have it slain. Then they had to roast the lamb. And then they had to get the bitter herbs and the wine and the unleavened bread for the meal. And uh, my guess is, man being inherently entrepreneurial, there were kiosks all around the city (laughs) that would just conveniently sell these supplies, okay? All right, so that's the preparation for the meal. And then we have, in verses 14 to 20, the Passover meal and a new memorial. I want to talk, first of all, about the Passover setting in verse 14. And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table with the apostles with him. I want you to notice something here. In verse 1, Luke said, When the Passover was approaching. In verse 7, Luke said, Then came the day of unleavened bread and Passover. And now he says in verse 14, when the hour had come. He goes from approaching to the day to the very hour. And so Luke is obviously building up to this time of Jesus and his disciples being together. And it is significantly, it is a significantly important time, I believe, first of all, because of the time that Jesus has with his disciples and what he will share with them on this last evening before his death. We will see that he shares the new memorial. But we also know, again, from other sources like John, chapters 13 through 17, Jesus gave them that body of instruction that's referred to as the upper room discourse that Jesus gave with them when they were gathered in this upper room on this last night before his death. Extremely important time. But secondly, it's important for Luke's readers because it shows that Jesus is fully aware of what is going on. He's fully aware that these are his last hours. And he didn't run. He didn't try to avoid it. He wasn't in a panic. But we see him willingly 
participating in this diabolical drama showing that it was his purpose his willing purpose to be put to death it didn't come as an accident it didn't come as a surprise he wasn't arrested as an evildoer Jesus knew what he was doing and he's moving toward that event it is that for which he had come because it is out of that death that redemption comes now to understand the following dialogue that takes place especially in verses 15 through 18 we must understand the Passover meal the Passover meal was born out of once again that exodus from Egypt but this was the most significant event in Israel's history it was the display of God's mighty power against the powerful nation of Egypt when God humbled them and brought them down and allowed his people to be released from bondage and at that time it was then that God made them his special people and nation among all the nations they entered into that covenant relationship and so the Passover was a remembrance of the redemption that God had accomplished for them and a reminder of who they were as God's people it was a prescribed ritual. There was a prescribed ritual for the meal. I'm not going to go into great detail, but it had four parts. Each part of the meal began with the serving of a new cup of wine. There were songs that were part of the meal. There were prayers that were part of the meal. There was a recitation of what God had done for them in bringing them out. Bitter herbs were a reminder of the bitterness of their bondage. And eating the lamb was a reminder of that redemption that God accomplished for them. But now Jesus departs from the normal routine of the Passover meal and he begins to attach new significance and meaning to it. He begins with a message of hope in verses 15 through 18. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. There's that full consciousness of what he's doing here willingly going toward it for I say to you I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God now it's hard to know exactly when these things took place in the course of the meal but I would suggest probably at or near the beginning Jesus tells his disciples that this will be his last Passover meal with them until the kingdom of God is established on earth. And that that time, when the kingdom of God comes, they will partake of the Passover in fulfillment. He says, I'll never eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And this suggests that the redemption that was accomplished in Egypt 
and was remembered in the Passover meal would find its ultimate and complete expression when the kingdom of God comes. That is when redemption will be complete in the kingdom of God. Sometimes portrayed as a great banquet. And Jesus will be the host of this great banquet. It will be a celebration of the Passover but this time in praise and worship of the true Lamb of God, Jesus Himself. And He will be there and He will be the host. And then in saying this, I will not eat this meal again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He is giving a profound message of hope. He is saying that His suffering is not the end. What you experience in the course of this age is not all there is. But one day, that which is now pictured in the Passover meal will be experienced in fullness. Redemption, one day, will be complete. And we read on. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. At some later point in the meal, Jesus takes a cup and He basically reiterates the same message that He had just given. There is a message of sorrow. I will not be with you like this from now on. But there's a message of hope. They look forward to that time when they will be united with Him again in the kingdom of God. And I believe the Apostle Paul picks up on this message this message of hope because in his instructions for the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians 11 he says this for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes there's that aspect of hope in the Lord's table we look back at his death but we look forward to the fullness of redemption and then Jesus takes other elements of the Passover meal and he attaches new meaning to them and that's where we have a new memorial verse 19 and when he had taken some bread and given thanks he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Jesus took the unleavened bread of the Passover meal, and he gave thanks. The Greek word there is eucharisteo. Eucharisteo, from which we get our word Eucharist. And that's why some refer to the Lord's Table, the Lord's Supper, Communion, or the Eucharist because of Jesus giving thanks. Eucharist L. But he gave thanks and then he broke it. Now some would read a specific meaning into the breaking of the bread, but I would suggest that I think that's just 
the customary part of the meal that the host breaks the bread to distribute it to those at the table. And then he gave it to them as the host. And this is when it becomes now significant. He says, this is, you can almost say, read the word now in there, this is now my body. He says, this bread, this bread now represents my body. It represents me, he says, in that I have given myself for you. And the words for you can mean for your sake and for your benefit, and that certainly is true, but it can also have a deeper meaning and fully means I have given myself in your place as your sacrifice. And in the context, in the context of the Passover meal, he took the bread of the Passover meal. He just didn't take bread in abstract. Okay? It was not bread in abstract. It was the bread of the Passover meal. What did the bread of the Passover meal mean? It was unleavened bread, which signified a break from the past and a new beginning as the people of God. And it is that bread that he takes and he attaches this new meaning to it. And so he is saying, I have given myself as a sacrifice for you and it is through me that you now have your new life. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. This is the memorial. It's no longer looking back to the Passover. No longer looking back to Egypt. We look back to Him. We are to look to Him in the bread and be reminded of what He has done for us. And in being reminded, we are to hold Him and what He has done for us dear to our hearts. <clears throat> and verse 20, And in the same way, He took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in My blood. So in the same pattern that He had done with the bread, Jesus attached new meaning to the cup. In the same way, Luke tells us. Jesus says, this cup now represents my blood that is poured out for you. Now the idea of blood being poured out is without question sacrificial language. And Jesus is saying, my blood is being shed as a sacrifice for you. And this is the inauguration this is the beginning. This is the effecting of the new covenant. You see what he said? This cup which is poured out, my blood which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. This is the language here of Exodus 24.8. Shortly after the Passover event and the exodus from Egypt. The people are gathered at Mount Sinai. And Moses 
sprinkled blood onto the people, stood before them, sprinkled blood onto the people, which was called the blood of the covenant, as they entered into a new covenant relationship with God. And the descendants of Abraham became the people of God that day. And now Jesus says, through my blood, you enter into a new covenant. Not that one in Sinai, but you enter into a new covenant relationship with God, of which Jeremiah had spoken in chapter 31. Listen to the words of Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. That's the new covenant. And all of God's people, by faith in Jesus Christ, are now in a new covenant relationship to God. And just as the Passover began a new era in God's drama of redemption and was to be reflected on by the people, so Jesus' blood begins a new era of God's redemptive purposes and is to be remembered by God's people. So this is our new memorial. Bread. The bread that signifies new life now represents His body that was given for us. And it is through the sacrifice of Himself, giving Himself for us, that we have that new life. The cup symbolizing His blood poured out as a sacrifice, inaugurating and bringing into reality the new covenant. And as we observe, we are reminded of Him and what He has done for us. And as we do so, we do so in hope that one day we will sit with Him in the great banquet in the kingdom of God. When the picture of our redemption in the Passover meal will be fully and completely realized and enjoyed. The worship team is going to come now and lead us in a song as we prepare to observe this new memorial. <clears throat>